Hello and welcome to my podcast My Surian Talks. I am your host Aditya. This is episode 5 where we talk about the T20 World Cup that is going on. Quite a happening week at that, isn't it? So let us get straight into it. I am recording this right after watching the Zimbabwe Pakistan match. What a match. I had to calm myself down after that by taking a few deep breaths. Woo. All of us know that Pakistan is an unpredictable team and they showed just how mercurial they can be. Three required of the last three balls. How on earth does one lose their way from there, huh? If someone could lose a match like that, it can only be Pakistan or maybe Bangladesh. However, 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 we must not forget the fantastic performance put up by Zimbabwe. What a spell of bowling by Sikandar Raza, the off-spinner. I thought he would be the weak link that Pakistani batsmen would take on to win this match comfortably. Instead, they ended up giving him three wickets. I think that was the turning point of the match where the Park dugout started to have doubts over whether they were good enough to win this one. Look at this. In the Park dugout, we have the big guy, Matthew Hayden as the team mentor for Pakistan. For a World Cup happening in his own backyard. And him watching his team capitulate so badly, my heart went out for him. He knows how to win, coming from the legendary Australian team of the 90s to being a part of CSK at the IPL. His aggression is legendary. To watch Pakistan lose so badly felt sad mainly because of Hedos being on the losing side. I think Hedos will resign soon and go back to sea surfing. Coming back to the World Cup itself, it has become a World Cup of upsets. Quite a while since we had a World Cup like this. Namibia beat Sri Lanka in the qualifiers. West Indies were sent back home straight from the qualifiers. Zimbabwe stunned Pakistan. Ireland has beaten Sri Lanka and England. I don't know how many more upsets are in the offing. But Ireland beating England again is my most favourite moment so far. Not even India beating Pak in a ridiculously exciting match. Ireland beat England for the first time in the 2011 World Cup. I remember having tickets to the 2011 match which was held in Bengaluru. But I think I had something else that was so important that I could not go to the stadium to watch that match. I ended up watching it on television. That Kevin O'Brien knock to take Ireland home is one of the all-time best World Cup innings. Mostly forgotten and underrated, that knock. But consider this. Chasing down 326 or 327 I think was the target. After being a little over 100 with half of your side back in the pavilion at the 25 over mark. That knock must have been something, isn't it? Even today, I remember some shots that Kevin O'Brien played and cannot stop myself from shaking my head in disbelief. But yeah, that was the ODI World Cup. I watched this T20 match also live. Kept track of the match closely while being on work calls. Ireland batted well, but then they bowled even better. It was always on the cards once Butler, Hales and Stokes were back before power play was over. Though David Mullan tried his best, but he never quite found his touch. Ireland fielded like their life depended on it. England played like they had already won the World Cup. Simply loved the fast bowling by Joshua Little. He was anything but little. He was on the mark every ball. In the end, though the match got decided by a rule which I feel doesn't consider the T20 reality enough, I felt a deserving team won. With 53 runs to make of 33 balls, David Malan with his eye in and Mohin Ali in stupendous form. With Sam Curran and Chris Wokes to come in, counting England out would not be wise. 
So England feeling that they have been shortchanged, I can understand. But hey, they won the World Cup on similar formalities. Ireland clearly dominated them till the point that the match was called up. Simply loved the upsets. Coming to the match that was billed as the World Cup itself, India versus Pakistan. The match was hyped up so much that someone would have thought these two countries haven't played in decades, whereas they, they had played exactly a year ago when Pakistan handed India their first ever defeat in an ICC event. Babar Azam and Mohammad Rizwan made 152 as the opening partnership chasing down the target India had put up with great difficulty. Shahin Shah Afridi removed KL Rahul and Rohit Sharma very early and India never really recovered from that twin blow. Despite another Virat Kohli stellar innings, we lost and lost badly. This time, the same things happened. All of them went early. KL Rahul, Rohit Sharma, Surya Kumar Yadav, all of them went early. But again, Virat Kohli stellar innings, this time we won. My own forecast for this match was that India would lose unless they played the opening fast bowlers well. I did not give India much of a chance, honestly. In this match, I thought the fast bowling of Pakistan combined with the bouncy pitches of Australia during their monsoon season, which means the pitches would be a little moist too. And the tendency of the Indian batsmen to rely more on force and sixes, which would not come easily in these big boundaries. I felt India was playing in conditions, not directly helping our game style. I still think India may not last too long in this World Cup. I am not considering them favourites even. We do not have Bumrah and Jadeja, our two best players. Without Bumrah, our death bowling is as good as dead. And without Jadeja, we are starting at minus 15 runs in the field and two catches already dropped. Not to mention his tremendous finishing abilities with the bat. Some people argue that, well, we may not win as comfortably as we would have if these two would have played, we will still win. Well, I do not share that optimism. If you do not have your best 11 out there, someone else does. And that someone else has a like, higher likelihood of winning this tournament. Coming back to this match, Pakistan was not playing India. They were playing one man, Virat Kohli. I wanted to say that he played the best he has ever played. But that would not be true. That would not be doing justice to the number of stellar innings he has played. His Hobart innings against Sri Lanka Chasing 3.20 to be done in 40 overs to help us qualify to the finals is an innings I can never forget. That was an innings that he played purely on adrenaline. This innings of his was more composed. He knew when to slow down, when to take the quick twos and threes and when to hand over the strike to Hardik Pandya. He paced himself in his innings. If there was an innings that I would rate as his most mature, this one would be it. He waited. He encouraged the youngsters. He played well himself too. He shepherded the tail. He did everything we expect from a senior batsman and took us home too. I cannot finish talking about this innings or the match without talking about those two sixes that Virat Kohli hit of Harris Roff. The second six was perhaps the easier of the two. I think I can safely say that. It was pitched on the leg and Virat just picked it up and deposited it where it belonged. However, the first six was perhaps the greatest shot I've ever seen from Virat Kohli. Harris Roff was pretty much bowling fast enough for our batsmen to not even know exactly where the ball pitched. India needed 28 from 8 balls. Virat on strike. The ball was not pitched up. The ball was in that corridor of uncertainty that is usually shown in the pre-match analysis programs as Virat Kohli's weak area. And Kohli was already on the front foot. 
which is his instinctive movement. However, it was only half a front foot and he was waiting for the ball that would either be shot and into his body or the full yorker outside the off stump. The minute he saw the ball pitched in that shot of good length area, he went through with his shot. How he connected from where he was and how much the ball went beyond the boundary is still a miracle to me. What a shot, what a great shot. It was probably the greatest shot that this generation will see for a while. It certainly was right up there with Sachin's blitzkrieg in Sharjah 99 if you ask me. That shot sunk Pakistan's morale. Do you remember Kasparovic's body language after being hit to the top of Sharjah's tanks? The entire Pakistan team dropped their shoulders when they saw the ball sail over the boundary and into the stands. I think I can create that shot repeatedly in my head and it will not get better than the time I saw it live. That was the quality of the shot. It is like that pull shot that Sachin hit of Kadik in 2003 World Cup or his uppercut of Shoaib Akhtar in the same World Cup. Virat Kohli hitting Harris Roth is going to be the new benchmark shot for someone to emulate next. Pakistan, by the way, I think, were played not just out of the match but out of the tournament with this shot. Their loss to Zimbabwe is quite in line with that. They played like someone had taken the wind out of their sails. Zimbabwe's bowlers made better use of the pitch and the conditions than the experienced Pakistani bowlers. Also, I think it was the Pakistani batting that failed. They could not handle the pressure once their openers got out. In the recent times, their openers have made 50% of the team's runs they have scored in T20s. The rest of the batting order was perhaps not tested enough before this match in a, ma in a match condition. And with Zimbabwe having some quality pacers, they lost their way. I think this is the end of Pakistan in this tournament. In the next section, we shall talk about who are the favourites to win this tournament. And as I said earlier, it is certainly not India. So who will win this World Cup? I have watched many World Cups since I began watching this game, including the T20 World Cups. One thing that I have learned about the T20 game is this, a batsman will help you win a match or two, but a bowler in great form will help you run through sides in every match. A bowler performs on rhythm. A batsman, when in form, is gone, even if one good ball is bowled to him, or if he unluckily edges one. Typically, an all-rounder helps you through these tournaments. Apart from my own theory, the conditions in Australia, as we have seen so far, have favoured the teams with good bowling. Like we talked about earlier, the bouncy pitches, the monsoon season, the big boundaries are all directly in favour of the bowlers. On the basis of this, I rank the following teams as favourites. Number 1 is Australia. With Pat Cummins, Josh Hazelwood and Mitchell Stark as fast bowlers, their fast bowling is well stacked up. Adam Zampa and Ashton Eger make up for the spinning department. And they got world class all-rounders like Glenn Maxwell and Marcus Stoinis. Marco Stoinis took them across the line single-handedly during the game against Sri Lanka with the second-fastest T2050 ever. Backup all-rounders are Cameroon Green and Tim David. That's some serious horsepower that they have in the bowling department. Despite a dodgy start after losing to New Zealand and almost stumbling against Sri Lanka, with conditions very well known to them, they are clearly favourites to win. Number 2 is England. With Mark Wood, Chris Jordan and Taimal Mills, they look not so great on paper, but in Australian conditions, the bounce these guys extract can be tough to negotiate. They have great backup in case of injuries, which they are mostly used to as a team. Like David Willey with his 
left arm pace bowling is very dangerous. Supported by Ben Stokes and Sam Curran in the all-rounder department, their spinners are Adil Rashid, Mohin Ali and Livingston who can turn his arm over. This could be their only weak spot, the spinners, but I think they are best positioned to land up in the finals for sure. They have developed a rare T20 quality over the years, in which they have figured out how to win. Of course, the rain gods played spoiled sport against Ireland, but they really outplayed Afghanistan easily. And Afghanistan is not an easy team to put away like that. Number 3. I bracket both New Zealand and South Africa together. I build them both equally. They have the same quality of bowling. I think New Zealand made really short work of Australia and were unlucky to lose out on a point against Afghanistan. South Africa is really playing unbelievably well. Like they have Nokia, Rabada and Ngidi, New Zealand have bowled Saudi and Ferguson. With Adam Milne, New Zealand may have a slight edge over South Africa. In the spinning department, however, South Africa have Keshav Maharaj and Tabrez Shamsi, while New Zealand have Mitchell Santner and Ish Sodhi. Their spin bowling department is where I think they lag behind Australia and England, which is why they are in the second rung of favourites. My prediction is that the finals will be between England and Australia, with Australia emerging winners in the end, unless England happen to have a, a bat that pushes the ball to the boundary again and you end up counting the boundaries to figure out who's the winner. Who do you think will win? Let me know on Facebook or on Instagram. Let's talk about it. In the next section, we shall look at the recommendation for the weekend. In this week's recommendations, I want to talk about House of the Dragon, a prequel to the Game of Thrones. Set 172 years before Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon Season 1 takes us through the reign of King Viserys Targaryen. It is every bit as good as Game of Thrones, if not better. There are pieces of writing in the show that made me go wow. For example, they change actors of the characters to show that they have aged. And that's such a strange move within a season 2. Like the crown changed the one who played the queen at the end of a season, but here you have the actors changing at the end of roughly half of the season. And there's a time jump that's not even referred to anywhere. You're just expected to keep up by looking at the age of the children around and the number of them. They don't assume us to be dumb. The writing assumes the audience will catch up, doesn't explain every detail to us. It's as if we are part of the story at places. And not just that, the way the Queen Alicent Hightower is written is very well done. For instance, in one episode where she is just being thrust into being the Queen and is trying to question the virtues of another heir to the throne with her guard, she keeps mumbling and going round and round and round. She is not sure how a queen is expected to do that and in that beating around the bush, some form of shocking truth emerges. I thought that was a stroke of brilliance in writing. And then the queen is shown to be so supremely confident towards the end of the season that she is playing politics and she is really doing what the queen, what a queen should do and it is a treat to watch. The way the characters are written is very real. As the audience, we know that everything is made up. It is fantasy. Even the sets are mostly digitally done or made up in plaster of Paris. But the story and the characters are so real, you are pulled into it by the sheer nature of the drama, the intrigue and the emotional mastery displayed by the writer. Thank goodness for George R. R. Martin writing this one. Please don't miss it. House of the Dragon on Disney Hotstar. And with that, we come to the end of this episode. Thank you for listening.
Tune in to Mysorean Talks every Friday. I am on Facebook and Instagram as Mysorean. I also have a Facebook page for the podcast called Mysorean Talks, facebook.com slash Mysorean Talks. Please like the page and stay connected for more and frequent updates. You can also connect with me on mysorean.com. Come, say hi, let's get talking.